We are going to dig into the scriptures. We are in a series called Top Ten, and we are coming to the end. This is the last sermon in this series. We are finishing off the Ten Commandments. How many of you have enjoyed the series so far? I have absolutely loved it, and I hope you have too. If you've missed one, go back to our live stream. You can see them all there. We have all of them uploaded on our website. But we are in Exodus 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. We're not going to have any of the scriptures on the screen. We're going old school for this one, so you got to get the Bibles out from underneath the chair, and you got to labor with me as we go through the scriptures together. So open your Bible, pick up a pen, grab your notes, and let's jump in together. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Every command up to this point is teaching us something about ourselves. We've seen, Pastor Rodney's talked about this, I've talked about this. The Ten Commandments are split into two categories. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The last six deals with our relationship with our neighbors. Jesus is going to say in Matthew 26 that the entire law is fulfilled in this. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of all the commandments, and the Ten Commandments is showing us the reality. What happens when the rubber meets the road? What is it supposed to look like in our life to fulfill the laws of God? And so the first four deal with our relationship with God. When we get that right, it's like it opens the door to everything else. So if there's been a falling out with your parents... And you struggle honoring them because of things that have happened in the past. What God is inviting you to do is he's inviting you back to commandment number one and saying, Micah, I want you to trust me as the number one. I don't want you to put any gods in front of me and I want you to give yourself for me. Remember what he says, I'm a jealous God. I want you to myself. I don't want to share you with anybody else. He's a jealous God, and so if you want to deal with some of these issues in your life that these laws are bringing up, it starts with your relationship with God. If you want to learn how to honor your parents, you must first learn to honor God as God, as the creator of your life, as the creator and the giver of the things that are good around you. He is the one where it all begins. But now, we're closing up our series, and again, we're going to look at what it looks like for us to love our neighbor, and what we're going to see is something completely different. Up to this point in the commandments, we have seen God teaching us how to love him, how to love our neighbors, and he does it primarily by telling us what not to do, right? You shall not what? Murder. You shall not steal. Because when you perform that action, right, when you do that thing, when you commit adultery, you're sinning against God. And what we're going to see in this last command is God is going to give another prohibition. He's going to give a do not, but he's going to do it with something that I think, and I think God does this strategically, it kind of undergirds every other commandment that we've, we've been going over. What God is going to do is he's going to say, do not covet, Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Now think about it for a second. What was one of the other commandments? Do not commit adultery, right? Don't don't see your neighbor's wife and, and long after her. Didn't he already give us a command about neighbor's wives or neighbor's husbands? 
Well, yeah, he did. But what he's doing here, and that Hebrew word for covet, it means to strongly desire something someone else has. The Hebrew word is hamad, and it means to take pleasure and to strongly desire something that you don't have, but someone else does. What God is going to do with the last commandment is he's going to bring the bookend on his rules as to what it looks like to be a citizen of God. What does it look like to have your identity being formed and shaped by him? I shared this with downtown, and I want to share it with you, because uh, this, this really shaped the way I think about uh, the Ten Commandments, and I think it's important for what, as we close this series out. But an Old Testament scholar named Bruce Walkie, he looks at the Ten Commandments and he says, look, we all know about our rights. We're, we're Americans, right? We hear about the First Amendment and we're like, we have a right to free speech, and we all grunt and we're like, yeah, America, right? And then, and then we look at our Second Amendment, we're like, we have a right to bear arms, and we grunt and we're like, ah, America. And we have this idea of like, you need to know your rights, and I agree with it. We all need to know our rights because we don't want people abusing our rights. That's the mindset that we as, as Americans have. But when you look at the law of God, and this is what Bruce Walkie points out, he says, you see something totally different. You see God solidifying rights. In fact, a lot of rights that you see in our Constitution, and in our amendments, are built upon the Ten Commandments. This is a revolutionary document, revolutionary rules that God gave to humanity that oftentimes we take for granted. Americans, we know our rights, but what God is doing with the Ten Commandments is He's saying it in such a way where it's not about your rights. What God is saying to me is he's saying, Micah, you shouldn't steal from your neighbor. Why? Because your neighbor is made in the image of God and they have a right. You shouldn't murder your neighbor. Why? Because your neighbor is made in the image of God and they have a right. What God is doing with these laws is he's elevating the rights of our neighbors and saying, Micah, the priority in your life is to uphold your relationship with God. Make that the number one priority. And then number two is this, uphold your neighbors. It's not concerned with your rights. And you have the right to life. You have the right to not be stolen from. It's not like God isn't saying you have that. What he's doing is he's pointing our eyes at our neighbors because he knows our hearts. He knows that we know our rights. He knows that we are going to defend our life and our family. He knows that we're going to work hard to provide for them. He knows all those things about us, and he knows that we know that he knows. Okay? What he's doing here is he's saying, Micah, your job is to uphold the rights of your neighbor. And he's saying to my neighbor, watch, watch how this works. He's saying to my neighbor, Micah's neighbor, it's your job to uphold the rights of Micah. See what God's doing? He's creating an ecosystem where people aren't consumed with themselves. Rather, they're consumed with their relationship with God and their relationship with their neighbors. God knows it's easy for us to look at ourselves and it's difficult for us to uphold the rights of our neighbors. And so he gives us these commands to help us check our heart. But here's what else it does. And this is what we're going to see this morning. Every law to this point, and the one we're going to study today, it reveals that there's something in our heart that needs to be redeemed. 
There's something deep down that's broken in us that we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, to come and identify and transform because we can't do it on our own. So if you've never murdered, congratulations. You know what Jesus does? He links it to hatred. If you've ever been angry at your brother, right? If you've ever, if you've ever been frustrated, the, 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 Jesus' brother James will talk about this too. He links it to murder. So the seed of murder isn't murder. The seed of murder is anger and it's hatred. Is there anger in your heart? There's something in you that needs to be redeemed. And so what we're seeing in this last commandment is he's saying, do not covet. Do not have a desire for the stuff of your neighbor. Do not desire your neighbor's life above the one that I have given to you. So here's the first point. Coveting is untamed love. Write that down. Coveting, when you covet your neighbor's possessions, when you covet their house, when you covet their spouse, when you covet their kids, when you covet uh, their servants or their status, when you cover their ox or their donkey or their financial situation in life, when you covet the cars that they have and you think, man, they got a good life. I wish I had that for myself. What we're seeing in the Scriptures is that this coveting is an untamed desire. It's strongly desiring something that is somebody else's. And I shared this with our, our team in Peru, and it worked really well, and so I'm going to do it here. We'll see how it, we'll see how it works out. But there was a, there was a scholar and a, a father of the church. His name was Augustine, St. Augustine. He lived a long time ago, uh, and he... Uh, grew up and was a very uh, lustful man. He enjoyed the pleasures of life. He loved uh, the drink. He loved the sin. He loved all these things. But then he had an encounter with God and he got radically transformed. He joined the priesthood. He, uh, I believe he became a bishop. And he was one of the, the great fathers of the church. And his works are still influencing uh, pastors and theologians to today. And in his book on Christian doctrine... He makes, an, I think, an incredible observation. One that radically reshaped the way that I personally view God and view sin. He says this, and, and follow along if you can. Now he is a man of just and holy life who forms an unprejudiced estimate of things. And he keeps his affections also under strict control. So that he neither loves what he ought not to love, nor fails to love what he ought to love nor loves that which ought to be loved less, nor loves that equally which ought to be loved either less or more, nor loves that less or more which ought to be loved equally. No sinner is to be loved as a sinner, and every man is to be loved as a man for God's sake. But God is to be loved for his own sake. Now, if you had a hard time following along, that's a-okay. All right? He was, he was uh, from northern Africa, and he was a very smart dude. Uh, and this isn't a seminary class, but here's the point Augustine is, is trying to make. What he's making is, is what scholars have, have coined a um, disordered love. And what he argues for is that here's, here's the reality of what sin is. We oftentimes think of sin as, as breaking a rule of God, and so when we covet, we're like, ah, oh, I broke God's rule, and so I've sinned. But what Augustine says is that when you sin, what's really going on is that your love is disordered. He makes the argument that we're supposed to love. 
Love is something that's a part of our nature. We're made in the image of God, and He is triune. And there's this perfect harmony and love between the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, where they are three, but they are one. And there's this love that, that each person in the Trinity gives to one another, right? And, and that love is something that God has, has allowed us to experience and be a part of when he put his image in us. And so love is something that is natural. It's holy. It's powerful. We are to love things. But what Augustine uh, does here is he says what sin is is when you love things out of order. He says God is love, and so he is, it's like he's the chief end of man. He's the thing that we're striving for. He's the thing that we are made for. He is the thing that deserves all of our love and all of our attention. He gets the number one spot in the hierarchy of our life. And so Augustine, he gives different examples, and what he'll what I broke down uh, down south in, in Peru is, is that there's a hierarchy in our life that God has given to us, an order of things that we are to love. So first is God, second is spouse, third is children. Sometimes people get those two mixed up, right? First is God, second is spouse, third is children. Fourth is job. Fifth, uh, you could have a long list, but fifth is hobbies. It's the things that you enjoy to do, but they're not necessarily needed every single day of your life. But that's the order of operation, the order of love in our life. And what Augustine's uh, thesis is, is that sin happens when you love something out of order. And so what it looks like in our life is if we love something out of order, let's take our job, for instance. Let's take our career. We want to be successful in life. And what happens a lot, especially in America, is we love our job out of order, and so we put it above our children, and sometimes we even put it above our spouse. And what we do is in our mind, we say, I have to provide for them, and so I have to be at work 70, 80, 90, 100 hours a week, and and you know what? I can't make it to my kid's basketball game. I can't make it to my kid's show choir event because I have to work, because if I don't, I can't provide for my family. And so, so the love for your job, the addiction you have for work, thinking you have to do all these things to provide for these other things that you love, What it will do in the long run is it will create bitterness between your kids and you. They'll grow up thinking that, man, dad or mom, they just love their job more than they love me. They could never make it work. And and I get it. Times were tough and things were hard, right? And And they had to do it. And there could be some understanding there, right? But the children will get bitter with the parents because the parents didn't love them in the right order. They loved their job more than they loved their kids. The spouse will get irritated with them because it's like they're never around. It's like, it's like even when they are home, the only thing they're th- thinking about is that next deal. It's that next relationship that they have to be. This is something that I struggle with in ministry. I've had to go to great lengths to create boundaries to protect my wife and kids, and I still stink at it. But what we're communicating with a disordered love is that there is a a, a love that is greater than the other things. And it affects the way we view each other. If we have our kids, we are called to love our children. But if there's disordered love and we put them above our spouse, what will happen? Our spouse will see us interacting with the kids, but they'll never feel that affection. They'll never feel that respect. They'll never feel that love in the way that they were meant to feel it. Why? Because you're delegating it to somebody else. 
And it will break down the relationship. And over time, there will be bitterness. Over time, there will be anger. Instead of investing and giving time and commitment and love or respect to that relationship that matters the most, what will happen is it will grow distant and it will go cold. Why? It's not because you didn't love. It's not because you didn't try. It's that the love was disordered. And the reality is this. When we have disordered love, the thing we need to see the most, and this is what Augustine's pointing out, is we haven't just mismatched a couple things down here, but what we've done is we've taken God out of his rightful spot and we've put something else above it. And when we do that, when we treat a relationship and we put that in place of God, when we put our kids in place of God, when we put our job in place of God, when we put our hobbies in place of God, what we will do is create burdens and put them on other people thinking that they're God because we made it that up in our mind and it will crush them. Why? Because they were never meant to be in that spot. It's disordered love. It's not that we have loved wrongly. It's that we haven't loved appropriately. We haven't loved in the right order. We've taken God out of the number one position and we've switched Him with something else. What this commandment is doing is it's saying, check your desires. Tim Keller talks about the great lie that every person believes, especially young people. Right? Life has a way of beating you up Right? When you're young, you think you can conquer the world and you have this vision and these dreams and then, you, then the rubber meets the road and you realize life isn't everything it's cracked up to be and you start to reevaluate. Right? You start to temper your expectations a little bit because you realize like, man, this is harder than I thought. But he makes this point, we all are living and following after a great lie. This idea that we can achieve happiness if we can just make it to the next step. We can achieve happiness if we just have that family that looks like our neighbor's family. We'll be a little bit happier if we can just get that property on the lake. We'll be a little bit happier if we can just get that car because, you know, that's what my coworker has. And you know what? I make more money than him. I deserve that car. I deserve a better car than him. And what we end up doing to our neighbors is instead of loving them and upholding their rights, our desire undermines it, and we see them now as competitors rather than people made in the image of God. There's an example in Scripture that we see in the book of Micah, chapter 2, verse 2. Micah's speaking to the nation of Israel, and he's identifying sins that have happened in their heart. It's a book full of hope, but it's also a book that's very difficult to read. And it says this, it says they're wealthy businessmen. They covet fields and they seize them. And houses, and they take them away, and they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. He talks about covetousness, and he says the people coveted each other's land, and the ones who were powerful took it away from those who were weak. They undermined them, and instead of loving their neighbor, they saw them as competition. They saw them as a means to their own end. I need to be happy, and so the only way I can do it is if I take from them the things that I want. We dehumanize our neighbor when we covet the things that we don't have. When we look at their marriage and we think, man, I want that marriage. Man, if my spouse was like their spouse, my life would be so much easier. 
If my, if my wife just loved me like their wife loved them. If, if, if the husband would just, would just love me like their husband loves them. Then my relationship would be better. What that is, is it's coveting. There's nothing wrong with looking at a couple who's been married 40, 50 years and being like, man, that's what I want. Like, honey, that's what I want right there. Like, how are we doing? There's nothing wrong with that kind of desire. That's a good love. That's a good desire. But when it becomes something that you don't have that you want, where it's like, look, I don't have this in my life right now, and the problem, the problem is them. The problem is my kids. My kids will never be like those kids. They're just little turds. Well, maybe there's a reason why they're turds, right? But my kids won't be like those kids. We start coveting what someone else has. What are we doing when we covet? We're lifting ourselves up and we're saying, I deserve this. I deserve what they have. I've worked hard enough in my life and I have sacrificed enough in my life to gain happiness. Why don't I have it? I deserve what my neighbor has. What we're doing in those moments is we're lifting ourselves up and here's what it does. Covetousness robs us of satisfaction. Write that down. Covetousness robs us of satisfaction. The, the prophet Micah goes on to say in chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. He says, your rich men, they're full of violence. Your inhabitants, they speak lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow. I'm going to judge you. Watch what the judgment is. This is mind-blowing. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm making you desolate because of your sins. Here it is. You shall eat. This is the judgment. You shall eat and not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger amongst you. You shall put away, not to pres- but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. Here's the judgment that God pours out on the people. They're going to get judged. Another nation is going to come in and it's going to wipe them out. But the judgment is those things that you lust after, those things that you covet after, those things that you think will make your life happy, in the end, they will leave you hungry. You will eat and you'll still be hungry. You will lust, but you will still need more. And when you think you've obtained it, you'll realize it's not enough, and so you'll get more and more and more of it. We see a very real-life example of this in something like alcohol or drugs. We see people who have difficult things going on in their life and instead of putting God in the number one place, what they'll do is they'll take a a love of a substance like alcohol and they'll put it in the number one spot and that will be their medication, that will be their therapy. It'll be a drug, it'll be weed, right? It'll be cocaine. I was just in Peru, ayahuasca is huge there. If you follow football, you know Aaron Rodgers was just down there like this last year, and he was on like a ayahuasca binger, right? Like, I don't know what it is about the tree bark, but they love it down there, okay? But we do it to get away from our pain rather than trusting in God. I was, and, and what it does, here's the irony of it, is that thing that we learn to love that gives us freedom from the momentary pain that we feel, the irony is the love that we have for that will actually lead to our destruction. It takes the the marvelous things and makes them mundane. It takes the things that are to be exceptional in life that are meant to awaken our desires and it will actually stifle them and destroy them. I was sitting on a plane, uh, you know, going to to Peru and, um, you know, like, 
preparing to get on the plane and sitting on the plane, uh, I, I made this observation where if, if you see somebody who's white, okay, not, uh, you know, if you see someone who's white going to Iquitos, Peru, okay, they're one of two things. They're either like missionaries or religious people like us, or they're there to do ayahuasca. Like literally, I mean, you got like an 80% chance. And so I, I, I saw this group of, of people, right? And, and, and I was like, <laughs> I bet you anything, you know, they're here to do ayahuasca. They just looked apart, right? I was totally prejudging them, right? So we got on the plane. I sat next to two of them. We had a great conversation, you know, just talking about different things. And so I asked them, well, what is it that you're doing in Aikido's? And they're like, oh, we're going to a ayahuasca sanctuary, and, you know, we're going to go do this stuff, and there's a special diet they go on, and they want to have these mystical experiences uh, because that's their spirituality. They obtain the spirituality by doing uh, this tree bark, and, and they have these moments, right, where they say they encounter God, and they encounter a higher spirituality, right? And it was a very interesting conversation. And so, you know, after about a couple minutes of that, I was like, all right, well, this is getting weird. And so I put my headphones on, but I left one of them to the side here, okay? And I was totally not eavesdropping, but I heard their whole conversation, okay? And they were getting to know each other. They didn't really, you know, before this point, hadn't really got to know each other. Um, I think they were part of the same group, though, and so they were just, you know, hey, here's my name, here's my name, you know, you know, it's really cool, they were like drug buddies, they were talking about, you know, their different experiences and stuff, and, and I'm just over there playing Sudoku, like, just awkwardly, you know, <laughs> listening to their conversation, and something happened in that conversation uh, that just, it, it spoke to my spirit. Uh, the, the, the woman asked the man, this big burly man, right, like big black beard, and looked like he had chopped down a couple trees before by hand, you know, like that kind of guy. Um, and she, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, it said something about his dad. And she's like, oh, like, what happened to your dad? And he's like, oh, well, he died a couple years ago. And she said, she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he immediately, immediately shot back, don't be. Quiet. It was just awkward, and you could see, like, I kind of looked over a little bit, and she was just like, oh, like, I'm sorry, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean to bring anything up. And he changed the conversation and went down another trail, and I thought to myself, how interesting. Like, this guy from America is coming down to Peru to do this drug that promises him, it promises him that he'll find happiness. God, it just breaks my heart thinking about it. You'll find happiness. You, you got a daddy issue over here. And if you do this thing, you'll find happiness. If you learn to love this thing, it will actually bring you into this spiritual encounter that you will enjoy and it will help lead you in forgiveness and all this stuff. And it's like, well, dude, why hasn't it worked for you yet? And in my mind, I'm like, he, he loves this thing that he's willing to travel to a city where there are no roads that even go to it. You can only get there by plane and boat. He's willing to travel all this way, desperate to try to find a medication to soothe the pain that's going on in his soul. And what he doesn't realize is that it's a fraudulent God. That God is meant to be number one in his life, but he's got those things out of order. And this thing that he, he loves will be the thing that will destroy him. It'll be the thing that will lead him down a path where there's no going back. And the only way out is for God to do a miracle. And it broke my heart. And I thought to myself, how many times do we love something because it, will, because it will bring satisfaction to our life because we're desperate to find contentment. We're desperate, we're desperate to achieve that lie 
of one day I will be happy. One day all of this will be done away with. One day the pain that I feel will be no more. One day I'll finally have enough money. One day I'll finally have that marriage. One day I'll finally have those kids. And I just got to work a little bit harder to get to it. What God is saying is, yes, work is required, but the only way it happens is through grace. It's through a realization that you don't earn favor with, with the number one spot. You don't earn favor with God by your works. You do it through repentance and faith. You do it by believing in the gospel. What disordered love does is it destroys our desire. It attaches it to the wrong things and it causes us to love the wrong things rather than the right things. It causes us to love other things over and above God. The last point I want to give to you is to be satisfied is to be blessed. To be satisfied is to be blessed. So the question that's begging is what does satisfaction look like? The word blessed it means this, it means happiness. To be happy is to be blessed. Or excuse me, to be satisfied is to be happy. Some of you need to write that little, right, that, that, that little phrase down again. To be satisfied is to be happy. We are all chasing happiness. A verse that has just been rocking my world, seems to do this every time I read it, is Matthew 5, verse 6. Jesus, Jesus is taking the law of God, right? Moses is up on a mountaintop. Jesus is up on a mountaintop. Moses is receiving the law to God and he's speaking it to the people of Israel. Jesus is taking the laws of God and he's speaking it to the crowd that's in front of him. Jesus is the better Moses. That's a total rabbit trail we don't need to go down right now. But this is what Jesus says. He says in verse 6 of Matthew 5, Blessed, happy, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Think about that verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. When I think of satisfaction in my American brain, in my consumer brain, I think of satisfaction when I'm full, right? I think happy are those who just got done eating at Culver's and the food is in their belly and they look more like a burger than they did when they came in, right? Like, like blessed are those right, whose, whose kids have gone off to college and are successful. Blessed are those who, happy, happy are those who have that good marriage and they love each other. Happy are those who have the career, who have the job. Those are the people who are happy. Jesus takes all of it, crumples it up, throws it out the window, and he says this, blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who thirst. He's going directly against the grain of how we view our world and our life. We think we need more to be happy. Jesus is saying, you don't find happiness in more. You find happiness in hunger. Some of you need to write that down. There's happiness that Christ has given to us when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is more concerned about your journey than he is about your ending. Jesus wants you right now. And He wants you in your hunger. He wants you when you're thirsting. There are people in this room who have been struggling for days, weeks, months, and years. Chasing after the happy life. Chasing after the blessed life. Thinking if they just do the next thing, then they will finally have arrived. And what Jesus is screaming to us this morning is He's saying, Stop! 
Stop chasing the stuff that I have created and start chasing after righteousness. Start chasing after me. What God wants to do is He wants to meet you in your hunger. He wants to meet you in your thirsting. And He wants to be the one who satisfies it in your life. Jesus is going to say in the Gospel of John that I'm the bread of life. I am the living water. If you would have known that, you would have come to me and I would have given you water that would have never left you thirsty again. Jesus met people when they were hungry. He didn't meet them after they arrived. He didn't say you have to figure all this stuff out and then you'll be blessed. He said, no, it's in the hunger you'll be blessed. It's in the grind of life that you will find blessing and you will find happiness and you will find satisfaction. This is the key in Philippians 4, 11-13 that the Apostle Paul, the great missionary, discovered. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through who? Through Christ who gives me strength. Paul does not say, I I find confidence in all this because I have kept the law. Because I am a good person. Because my kids turned out alright. Because my marriage was figured out. Because I had that job. Because I'm a big apostle and minister. He doesn't say any of that stuff. What he says is I can do all things because of what Jesus did. I do it because He's already done it for me. And what I do is put my faith and trust in Him. I come to Him in repentance and humility sacrificing my pride, sacrificing my ego. And it's then I can do all things. Paul's solution isn't another book. It isn't another podcast or even another sermon. What Paul's solution is, is Christ. And here's what God wants from you. He wants your love. He wants your desire. He wants your affection. He wants to be in the rightful position of your life. He wants your trust. Church, listen. He wants your pain. He wants your suffering. He wants your emotions. He wants your decisions. He wants your pursuit of happiness. He wants your desire. This is what I love about Jesus. This is why I follow this guy. I'll follow him to the end of the earth. Is because he went to a cross for me. He died on a cross for my sins. He saw what was rightfully due to me. That I deserved death. That I did not uphold the rights of my neighbor. I did not uphold my relationship with God. I had failed over and over and over again. I was engaged in disordered love. And it was destroying my life. And God saw me in my sin. And he sent his son to die for me on a cross. And you know what? I, this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus is dying on the cross. He makes one request to the Romans. You know what it was? I thirst. I'm thirsty. Give me a drink. They take a sponge, fill it with sour water and they, sour wine, and they put it up to his lips and he drinks. And guess what? He wasn't satisfied. See, Jesus thirsted. Jesus was hungry, and it went unmet at the cross. Jesus was forsaken. You know why? Because he took our unrighteousness upon himself. He took our brokenness upon ourself. 
He took our daddy issues upon ourself, upon himself. He took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and he hung there on a cross and he said, I thirst, I'm not satisfied. He lived the perfect life of anyone who should have been satisfied in their life. It would be Jesus. But He goes to a cross willingly for your sake and my sake. And He takes on our unsatisfied nature. He takes on our sin upon Himself. And there He dies. He's forsaken by God. Why? So you and I could be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and they thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Christ. I was thinking about this on the way home. How do you know that Jesus is in the right spot in your life? This is how we're going to end. How do you know that Jesus is in that number one spot? You know, when I was down in Peru for that eight or nine days, after day one, you know who I miss the most? My wife. I miss my kids. I miss seeing their little faces and hearing their little giggles and their little spats that they have with each other and their little fights like, I miss that stuff. After one day, right? Like, man, I'm turning into a softy, okay? But like, I miss them. What does it look like to have Jesus in the number one spot in your life? It's when you're not around his presence. When you're not around his person, you miss him. You're like, there's something, there's something missing in my soul. There's something that I, I can't get away from. I can't, I can't stop thinking about it like, like, I didn't do my devotions this morning. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't spend that time in prayer. I got a little bit too busy. Or I've, been, I've been fighting with my spouse, and instead of, instead of operating in humility and allowing Jesus to be at the center of it, I, I took it upon myself to control it. You know, I, I fought with my kids, and, and they left the house angry at me, and I don't know what happened, but, but like, I didn't include the Lord in the things that I've done. And, and you know what? I, I miss Him. You know when God's in the number one spot of your life, when there's any moment of time where you're away from him and you're like, you know what, Lord, I, where are you at? I, I had a moment like this. I had a busy month. Didn't spend as much time with the Lord as I wanted. And I was in my room in Peru just, just doing some studying and it was like God hit me with a hammer and he said, Micah, I miss you. He showed me something in Scripture and there was just this whirl of emotion in my mind where, where I literally had that thought of like, God, I miss you. And I'm sorry and I'm sorry that I left you. I'm sorry that I got so distracted with all this stuff. I got distracted with the scriptures. I got distracted with the teaching. I got distracted with the mission. And I realized that I had wandered away from God. And he reminded me, look, I need to be in that number one spot. How do you know? It's when you miss him. Do you miss God when you're away from him? Do you miss God on Wednesday? when you're fighting with your boss? Do you miss God on Thursday when you go home and you're frustrated with your kids? Do you miss God on Friday when you argue with your spouse? That's how you know he's in the right spot. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us so that if we come to you in repentance and faith, you are faithful and you're just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, Lord, from all unrighteousness. Lord, let us not believe the lie. Let us not believe the lie that we can achieve our happiness on our own, but Lord, let us find our joy and satisfaction in You. Let us believe that we can do all things 
not because of how awesome we are, not because we've kept the law, but Lord, because of what you have done for us. So Jesus, open our hearts, open our minds. Show us that seed that needs to be redeemed in our heart this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.